0: for democracy now we want to make this goal this morning we can do it only with you 800-222-9739 or you can go online to wpfwsm.org only a minute left in the program but you can keep calling for democracy now 800-222-9739 300 to go someone out there can call right now and pledge a thousand dollars and we'll be way over goal and we will be over the moon overjoyed that someone understood the importance of WPSW having democracy now here Monday through Friday, 8 to 9 a.m. I, I hate to talk over democracy now. I hate to cut into important interviews like the one we were just listening to, but we have to do this work. It is time now for E. Ethelbert Miller and On the Margin. Please keep the calls coming. You are in tune to WPFW Washington.
1: Welcome to On the Margin with E. Ethelbert Miller. My guest today is David Wilk. David Wilk is a poet, editor, publisher, and publishing consultant. He currently operates Prospector Press, Federator Books, and City Point Press. How are you doing, um, David?
2: I'm doing well. How are you, Ethelbert? Uh,
1: How are things west of the Mississippi?
2: (laughs) Well, I'm visiting in Arizona right now where instead of being warm, it's colder here than it is there. (laughs) <laughs> okay, climate change.
1: Following yeah, you. Yeah. <laughs> okay, Sorry. well, look, you you know, um, recently you sent me a copy of a book entitled "A Foot Is a Is Not a Fish" by Cornelia Moore Spellman. Uh, it's a children's book, but I, it seems to be so much more. And I wonder if you could begin the program today by, um, you know, reading you know the introduction to this. And while you're looking for it, uh, I want to remind our our listeners that we are in our winter fundraising pledge. And so um, we will be encouraging people to call um, 202-588-9739 or 1-800-222-9739. Once again, that's 202-588-9739, 1-800-222-9739, because I know you'll enjoy many of the things David will, will be talking about this morning. So David, a foot is not a fish.
2: All right, I'm going to read the introduction. This is by Cornelia Maud Spellman, not by me. Um, She is a a writer um, and a social worker educator. um, And I think this book is really Special. Um, One of our important responsibilities as parents, grandparents, and teachers is to reinforce and support our children's perceptions of reality and to strengthen their ability to distinguish what is real, true, and provable from what is belief or opinion or wish. They do learn, naturally, as they grow from babyhood, what is real and true. They delight in recognizing that a story or a game is pretend, and they are quick to object when someone else says something that they recognize is not true. This book aims to playfully illustrate common and observable truths by making absurd comparisons. A foot is not a fish. It aims to show that it is not hard to see what is true, and it also tries to establish that to make sense of our mutual world, agreement about what is true is necessary. What if some of us thought that a foot was a fish? Children understand that while different people have different beliefs and opinions, such as about religion, or what is good to eat, they also understand that beliefs and opinions are not the same as facts, such as what is night or day. Reality cannot be changed by simply saying the opposite of what is true. We can't just say that red is green. Children also understand that there is a difference between a wish and what is true. They understand, once they are past toddlerhood, that we cannot change the truth just by wishing or hoping. A wish is just a wish. They know that although they might wish it to be so, every day cannot be their birthday.
3: <laughs>
2: yeah. I, I think, uh, that resonates pretty much for our current reality, doesn't it?
1: <laughs> right. Yeah. I was thinking like I'm beyond toddlerhood. Toddlerhood, but this is a thing in terms of one for for parents. I think in terms of having discussions. You know, this is a book that you could take uh, into the workplace and have your Colleagues discuss um, what 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 jumped out at you when you got this book when you decided to publish this book.
2: I think just that that basic reality that we have to accept together that we all you know that I, I mean I'm as I'm as interested in alternative realities as anybody else is. I actually think that there's more to the universe than we understand or know, but what we have to live in the world that we live in is pretty, um, uh, it seems clear. You know, we all, I mean, we Mm -hmm. perception is reality. And so this book kind of immediately jumped out at me as um, for being brilliantly simple um, and for realizing that what we talk to children about when we are talking to toddlers and babies, we should be talking, you know, that should be accepted by everyone. Okay. It, you know we we shouldn't forget that by the time we're in our you know adulthood that what we know is what we know
1: okay well let's go back to baby David Wilk. <laughs> okay. Take, but take us back. I mean, I'm always fascinated by how you perhaps got interested in in books. Um, I've since in terms of were your parents book people? Were they reading to you? Um, were you like living across the street from a library? But but take us back to you know, your growing up and and how important books were for you.
2: Well, I am fortunate that my father was a writer um and my mother was an artist. So when I was growing up, books were part of daily life. Um, And I was pretty, you know, encouraged to spend, and I I was a bookworm, you know, as a kid, I do remember going to the library and um, asking for books every day after school to read beyond what we were doing in school. So yeah, books were always there. I read all the time. Um, And, you know, art was on the walls, art was being discussed. And we had You know, my father had friends who were writers. We were surrounded by writers, Mm -hmm. Um, and while in the you know when I was growing up, it was the '50s. He was writing television, um, not books, which he did later. Um, It was still you know books were everywhere. It was Mm -hmm. we were in a literary home, so I was it was unusual. You know, I don't. Did
1: did you have any favorite authors that that really shaped you in terms of some Uh, of the ideas that gave you a moral compass?
2: I, I don't know whether I could say that, um, you know, I read a lot of all the classics that kids would read um, in fifth, sixth grade. I was reading, you know, well, I mean, just, I don't know, you know, it, it's sort of hard to remember, um, who, you know, what stands out. I, I remember reading Dr. Doolittle and loving those books and I read all of Dickens and I, re- I you know, I read, you um, Lots and lots of science fiction, you know. Hugh, um, um, boy, I mean, old science fiction that's well,
1: like, f- like you look like Asimov and Arthur C. Clarke, to yeah, Bradbury,
2: Rad- a guy named Clyde, um, Cluckhorn, I think I can't remember all the names, but yeah, and, and um, yeah, and I and I even I do remember even reading, um, um. Uh, no, oh, I can't remember now. It's like it's it's too long ago. <laughs>
1: and and it's early in the morning where you yeah. are. <laughs> well look, I, I what I found interesting, uh, David Will is um, you know, we talked about you reading everything, but you did your graduate work in biology at, at Antioch Graduate School uh, after graduating from Yale University in nineteen seventy two. What profession did you see yourself entering back then?
2: well i had no clue um, i you know my undergraduate work was mostly anthropology and linguistics and i kind of thought i might do that and you know go to graduate school and um and become an anthropologist but a friend of mine at the time was uh, a Grovant indian from uh, montana and he suggested that i would enjoy teaching at a the school in Havera, Montana. And so the only way I could do that was to take a a program in teaching. So I went to Antioch and got I started on a um, master's of arts in teaching focusing on biology. And so that was what I thought I would do. And then I realized partway through when I actually talked to the principal of the school that it was not going to be, it wouldn't work out. I would not be a good teacher in that environment. So instead, I kind of went back to what I <clears throat> what I was doing avocationally, which was writing poetry. Oh, and I thought I would just um, be a poet and work, in you know, some job. I had no idea what I would do, uh, but I ended up spending a lot of time teaching as a poet in the schools. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, kind of gradually, uh, you know, I took, I, I worked, you know, I just did jobs that, you know, whatever. I could do, uh, and then I took a. Um, I did a year of teaching for the South Carolina Arts Commission, which had a program under Title VII, which was a desegregation program in a town in South Carolina, uh, which put seven artists, writers, poets, filmmakers, dancers in a school system where we went for an entire. It's actually a two-year program um, where we ta- worked with kids every single day in schools using poetry or film or dance or music um, to um, talk about issues of race and, and um, desegregation. So, because it was 1974 mm-hmm. and uh, that was, that kind of changed my life um, and gave me a, an experience that I would never have had any other place. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just sort of continued in that, uh, you know, in the literary world after okay. that.
1: But you have a, you have nearly a 50-year career working in almost every aspect of print and digital publishing, book distribution, marketing. Take us back to those early days. What pulled you into this field?
2: Well, it was completely ac- accidental like everything else I was doing at the time. Um, when I was in college with a bunch of other people, started a literary magazine, and we had to... Um, type it ourselves and print it ourselves and bind it and distribute it. So um, that kind of got me started. I could go back earlier. Um, you know, I fell in love with type when I had a job when I was a really young kid working at a local newspaper. And I saw Linotype, you know, and I thought, this is really cool. Um, and in college, I took a class in uh, letterpress printing. And you know, I loved holding type and putting uh, ink on paper. Um, And so I started learning how that worked and using rudimentary tools and kind of not knowing what I was doing uh, began to and learning from other people, which was really important. Um, And I was fortunate when I did, you know, I lived in uh, North Carolina for a couple of years. My next door neighbor was a a, was a professional typographer at the Duke University Press uh, who taught me a lot and helped um, a guy named David Southern who passed away last year. Um, we, you know, he helped me learn how to do this stuff. So, and then a woman at the University of North Carolina Press helped. So I just, I learned how publishing worked in the kind of, and again, the technology at that time was really different than it is now
1: and it was changing back then too
2: it was rapidly changing um through the 70s and 80s uh, metal type was going away um phototype was introduced uh we were working in um, you know using f- uh, phototype at that point sometimes you could use a, uh, a sophisticated typewriter that had um typesetting capabilities um and then later Uh, computer-generated type, Um, but I, you know, I was not really so much involved with the typography anymore. After a while, it became more the production and publishing, editing, um, and, you know, end end up hiring other people to do um, the professional work that, um, you know, like, that Mm -hmm. became too complex for, you know, the average person. So as time has gone on, I've worked in different areas of publishing, distribution, wholesaling, uh, editorial—pretty much everything that there is. Which you know, I've been very fortunate uh, that it's a it, it has created a career.
1: You know, from 1982 to 2007, you you worked with book distribution. Talk about that first business. Uh, where did you obtain the money? How did, how did you build up the, well, the expertise? And what challenges did you face? And what mistakes did you make?
2: <laughs> Lots of mistakes. <laughs> Lots of mistakes. Uh, actually, the first distribution business that I started was in 1976. It was called Truck Distribution Service. Truck Distribution, right? It was meant to be a cooperative of independent publishers who were doing literary books. Um, I had a group of about ten scattered around the country, and we would be. We thought we would share the work, but it turned out as often is the case with co-ops, that um, I ended up doing all the work. So
0: um
2: <laughs> you, you were I, co-opted. <laughs> I was right. I was the cooperator. Um but anyway, I was living in Minnesota at that time and um so I there was a grant program that what was called the coordinating council of literary magazines had some money from the Ford Foundation to distribute um to, to make books available in places around the country which were underserved so it being in the midwest that was really um thought of as a, a good place so in the upper midwest i would travel around to bookstores all over um minnesota north dakota so you had a truck no i had a i had a, a car. okay had okay no truck. Just, no truck all right yeah. but and and bring books to the bookstores and put them there on consignment magazines mm. too. and that evolved when i left to go work for the NEA, that became BookSlinger, uh, run by a guy named Jim Sitter, and he kept on doing it for a long time. Uh, But later, to go to answer your other question, about 1982, when I left the National Endowment for the Arts, I started a business with a friend of mine called Inland Book Company, which was a weird name for it because we were on the coast. Uh, (laughs) And I don't know why we called it Inland. We, We couldn't come up with a good name. Um, And we wanted to be the distributor on the East Coast for uh, independent publishers of all kinds. Um, At that time in the 80s, there was a really broad and large number of publishers in almost every area of publishing you could think of or every idea that you, you know, like there were black publishers, there were women's publishers, there were lesbians publishers, there were... um, uh, um, poetry, you know, all kinds of things going on, regional, and so we spent about fifteen years doing that. Or I think our we made many, many mistakes. Um, I such think a, we, such as
1: such as what what kind of mistakes
2: we We didn't realize how hard it was to run a business with no money. Um, you know, we thought the or the growth of the business, which was really explosive, um, covered up for the fact that we had no capital. Um, we basically started it on a shoestring. We borrowed some money from my parents and his parents, um, sold whatever we owned that we could raise money from. And we started really with no money and we didn't pay ourselves for the first year. Um, you know, it was really hard. Um, Mm. and we never, you know, in, in book, in the book business is not very remunerative. You don't make a lot of money in publishing or in book selling. Um, and in distribution, the margins are razor thin. Um, so being undercapitalized was always a problem.
1: Well, um, where, where are we, David? Where are we today in terms of book distribution in 2024? What's going on?
2: Well, what's what evolved over the last 30 years was the um, most of the book distributors that existed in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s went out of business, as we did. Um, were, they, were, they for- were they forced out of business or they just couldn't maintain... Uh, the, the market became really more difficult, fewer bookstores, um, you know, as uh, first Barnes and Noble and Borders, uh, put a lot of pressure on independent bookstores, more of them went out of business. Mm. When Amazon came along, even more pressure on independent stores. So more bookstores went out of business, um, could not stay in business, they were always marginal businesses anyway. Um, and so by, you know, the current time, you only need distributors of wholesalers to serve a market of independent retailers so if you don't have a lot of retailers you're not going to have uh, a system to serve their needs because it wouldn't there's no reason for it so now you're left with um, amazon as the primary retailer barnes noble is secondary of uh, distant second and a much smaller number of independent stores scattered around the country. The ones that are left and the ones that have started in the last 10 years are more fiscally sound. You know, They've survived. They're really smart. Uh, they know how to do their business, um, but there are fewer of them. So there isn't as much of a need for distributors. Mm-hmm. And then the as the distributors became weaker, uh, basically they were bought up by one company. Um, so you have uh, one company owns four distributors, then there's, I think, one or two others, That one other significant one. Well, actually, two other significant ones, and then a bunch of really little ones that are specialized uh, for some reason or another, you know, around some uh, subject. Mm-hmm. And it, so it's a much smaller.
1: Well, let me uh, ask you a question that I think maybe some of our listeners would be concerned about. Uh, say someone self-published their book. Okay, they're excited. The book was nice. Um, how did they interact with a distributor? They self published a book. Is a distributor going to look fondly upon them or are they going to say, well, no, just right? I'm no. Right.
2: That, and that's what, you know, in comparatively in, in 1985, if you self published a book, you could find a distributor uh, most likely. Um, in 2024, if you self publish a book, your options are essentially to work with one of the online entities like amazon which is the dominant or ingram spark um then there are a few others there's book baby there's blurb um you know there are quite a few online platforms that enable self-publishing which is a great thing i mean they you know it really works but the um distributors that are left will only work with established publishers. You have to be of a certain size for their business to work. So there's a huge number of books self-published. It's one of the features of the modern era. Um, we're now of, you know, we're now in a period where we are seeing millions of books published every year, literally millions of titles. Um, comparatively, to 1975, let's say or 76, when I was beginning my work, uh, 40,000 titles a year. Today, 15 million, uh, maybe more. Um, ebook publishing has um, enabled just ease of of publishing. It's just, it's really you don't have to worry about printing. It's very easy. Well,
1: you may not have to worry about printing, but we here at WPFW, we have to worry about bunny. <laughs> so I'm going to take a little break. If Katia is, is around, She, I guess maybe she'll join us, but um, we're in I a, am winter. Here. Okay, would you like to introduce here. yourself to David?
0: Hi. Go ahead, David. Katia. I'm, Hello. Hi, <laughs> you're so funny. I'm the program director here at WPFW. I don't know why Ethelbert is doing this, but, you know, he's a little trickster. He likes this. <laughs> And My it's name is Ishu. E. <laughs> right. That's what the E is for. That's right. Um, you know, it's a fascinating conversation that we've had a, a few great bookstores open up here in DC, solid state books. And then here in Tacoma Park, we have uh, people's books that just opened up uh, more of a, a woman centered bookstore, but it's, it's lovely to have the small booksellers. Um, but it's also interesting what you were describing in terms of, Now that we have less bookstores, the need for distribution, which makes sense, is less, and and how that affects the publisher. And again, folks, if you're just joining us, this is the kind of um, interesting and insightful and educational um, program that Ethelbert brings you. And, you know, there's always going to be a chuckle in there. There's always going to be a lightheartedness, which is wonderful, even when it's a very difficult topic, because we have to remember that in the midst of all that's going on, there are books. And we know that books transform and they can transport, they can do wonderful things for our spirit. And uh, uh, David, hearing you talk about growing up and books just being a part of daily life, what a wonderful thing that is. And uh, a foot is not a fish. I will be picking up, I believe that's the title for my niece. And I urge you all right now, if you have gleaned anything like I have, I've already gleaned so much from this conversation, then please support Ethelbert Miller in his work on, on the margin. We do, as a can just take a moment and thank Anonymous, who played last hour. We didn't get a chance to thank them out of Arlington, Virginia. And so now is your opportunity. You've tuned in to On the Margin because you love it, as we all do. So please make that call that makes the difference. 800 222 9739. Again, a modest goal of $500. I know there is a um bookworm out there, a literary person out there that really loves this program, tunes in, it's appointment listening for them, and they might have done well in life. If you've done well and you want to do something great, then take your resources, part of your resources, and support that which supports you. Support the work of E. Ethelbert Miller. He brings his work off air to our airwaves, and we are honored and privileged to have him here. He is iconic in his own right, as a poet, as a writer, as a thinker, and so we want to celebrate that, and we want to support what he does for WPFW. 800-222-9739, or you can go online to WPFWFM.org, $500 to go. Ethelbert, how's that?
1: Okay, thank you very much, Katia, <laughs> uh, very much. Um, David, I want to ask you, so I'm going to go back a little bit um, and talk about why you became the director of the literature program at the National Endowment for the Arts from nineteen seventy eight to to nineteen from nineteen seventy four to nineteen seventy eight I believe it is. Is the years in
2: uh, seventy nine I, I think seventy February seventy nine to November 81.
1: 81, Okay, I wonder. You know, you're dealing with a distributor. You gave up a you gave up a job, okay? You, you must have been like a a draft pick or something like that pulled into the endowment. And um, how important is you know NEA NEH you know to American culture? Uh, and and um, how important is it specifically to literature?
2: So I you know I don't know exactly why they hired me. I think it was, <laughs> um, I I applied for the job. You know, at that time thinking you know, you need new blood, you know, I was thinking, you you need somebody with a completely different view of things to do this thing. Um, I didn't really fully understand what I was getting into. I had no and probably didn't expect anyone to pay any attention to me. It was like one of those things, you know, you send your name into the lottery, you don't think you're going to win. And I think that it was for me, a learning experience. I don't, again, I, I'm not sure I was really good at that job, um, but I really believed in the mission. And I learned by when I got there, there were a lot of people there that are were brilliant and who had been around there for a long time, including someone who's a friend of yours, A. B. Spellman, mm-hmm. um, people who taught me um what the meaning and history of the National Endowment for the Arts is, and we can't go, you know, there's not enough time to go into all of that here, but it was founded during the, um, uh, the, uh, the period, uh, you know, the kind of great, great society, you know, this idea that, um, that Kennedy espoused that the arts were important to American life and were worthy of support by the federal government mm-hmm. and the humanities as well. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that period was really, uh, a kind of opening. I feel like we've lost a lot of that. I mean, the whole place, you know, has been attacked by, you know, well, the,
1: the people. I, the people I remember: uh, Carolyn Kaiser, uh, Lynn yeah. Randolph, Lynn Randolph. Right. Yeah, uh, th- these were people who were were pillars of of, of our community.
2: And and it, it came, you know, it started with this kind of um, like the Peace Corps. It started with an idea that it's hard to argue with. You know, the idea that um, the arts are valuable, like almost like we were talking about the foot is not a fish that you you want to, you know, people deserve uh, to be exposed to the arts. Like for me being, growing up at, with a uh, in, in an arts family, I was really unusual in my town of 5,000 people, um, even though there might've been another writer or two in the community. I didn't know any, you know, none of my friends, probably had as many books in the house as we did so i think that you know the arts endowment is a really important thing um that and it's done a lot of tremendous work over now more than a half century of um supporting writers that uh, we really need. And of course, there's always this argument, why should the government give money to a writer, you know, over um, a farmer? I mean, well, farmers get money too, you know, like, we we believe in America that uh, in value, and that the government expresses the will of the people to support things uh, that we think are important, sometimes not necessarily financially important, uh, that the, you know, that the economic system cannot support. Um, So we want to help them out. And, you know, the amount of money that goes to a writer when they get a grant is minuscule in the greater scheme of things. I remember they were always used to talk about the arts endowment budget in the 1970s was about $150 million a year. I think it's probably the same now. Um, and that was, you know, less than six feet of a submarine being built. You know, it's the the, the the dollars we're talking about in the, in the you know, against the amount of the federal budget or the federal deficit is ridiculous it's so and, you know
1: some and you know when you look back um some of those nea fellowships uh coming at a certain time that helped some people pay their rent you know it, it gave the ability that okay i am what i'm doing is serious you know uh and so it was very important in terms and, of and also that. it
2: it, star- it allowed people to write books let's say in some cases that literally changed the world um not just changed the lives of that one writer uh but had an impact on millions of people. So for a tiny amount of money, you're enabling someone to write a book. That's Mm -hmm. phenomenal. You know, so yeah, I really, I still am a believer uh, in the idea that we as a, as a society uh, it's worth our, um, a little bit of our support Mm -hmm. to um, support a writer or a, you know, a jazz musician or, uh, or even to recognize um, you know, while I was there, we started a program to recognize um, artists as almost like national treasures—people who had been doing it for a lo- you know their entire lives without rec- full recognition or without really having much support. Um, you know, that was important. I think to um, it- it's important for all of us to recognize how the arts change lives, mm-hmm. and even in small ways. Like I, when I did that program in South Carolina, I, I was you know we were doing poetry in schools uh, for hundreds of kids. And I once got a letter from a grown-up who lives in Atlanta and he wrote to me and he said, because of the you and Fel who was the other poet in the program with me, um, you guys taught me that writing was something that anybody could do. And I've become a professional writer, not a creative writer, but I am a writer simply because I read some poetry in a class with you guys in 1975. That was pretty, yeah. you know, that meant a lot. Right.
1: You know, when I think about, you know, the endowment, um, NEA, and, 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 you know, what you were mentioning, uh, you know, today I also look at what uh, Elizabeth Alexander is doing at the Mellon Foundation, you know, in terms of really, you know, supporting, you know, poet laureates around the country, you know, giving money to some people like Dwayne Betts to, you know, pick, build libraries and prisons. But she's having a significant impact. You know, and and I remember at one time, people felt that okay, if I if, if the endowment is doing this, this is what should be happening in the other sectors of our society. You have that sort of partnership. So if I got an NEH grant, I could go out here and and convince a company to give me additional money to to complete the. the
2: sure. It's true. It's it's always acted as a kind of um, lever on uh, on other. Um, Entities and yeah, Mm -hmm. in fact, what she's doing is phenomenal. I I noticed they have a new grant program. Um, you know, they're giving money to um,
1: Canadian American poets,
2: yeah, right, yeah. So, there's I think there's a a kind of broader recognition of the value of of poetry and creative writing today than there was you know 50, 60 years ago.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk about some of the big issues. And you know, we, we started out talking about you know, um. A foot is not a fish, um, but let's and we're talking about the endowment. But let's talk about the big issue in terms of what we see around our society. Um, uh, let's begin with Florida, for example. Let's talk about book censorship. You know, uh, how does it affect um, democracy and democratic institutions? Um, you talked about being a teacher. You talked about, you know, dealing with distribution. You talked about working for NEA. If you look at your different perspectives that you over the years of your life, Bringing all that to where we are now, how do you approach this, these issues of censorship?
2: Well, for any if anyone who's involved in any form of create creative expression, censorship is antithetical to our beliefs. It it is, um, you know, it's just, and I think it's wrong for society. I think we live in a, you know, if it's if we are to believe in democracy, that means we have to honor voices of all different kinds. That means. I have to honor a voice that dis- I disagree with radically. You know, if I you if you espouse something that I disagree with, my job is not to make you stop talking. My job is to oppose you better than you is to present the opposition better than you do. Um, you know, if, and I think that that I think we we lose that when people feel that um, the answer to uh, um, something they don't like is to shut it down, is to take it away, is to refuse to allow other people to hear it, Um, that's anti-democratic. That is not what we are, the country was founded on. So those principles, if we really believe in them, if you really believe in democracy, you have to allow, and I'm talking about, you know, the people who want to shut down Books about for kids about subjects that they don't like, or it could be people who want to shut down um, voices that they feel are um, wrong. I mean,
1: well, well, let's connect two things here. Okay, we were talking earlier about distribution. Okay, when you were dealing with distribution, David, will were there areas where you saw that perhaps certain regions of the country didn't want some of the books that you were distributing?
2: Well, I, you know, interesting. I, I would say we didn't have to contend with that, but the retailers did. If you were a, uh, you know, like the, I always felt like the gay and lesbian bookstore in Atlanta at that time in the 80s was probably a little more worried than the gay and lesbian bookstore in New York City or in Los Angeles or in Chicago um, or in a small town, you know, maybe in Florida or in Texas. Um uh, ironically, the biggest problem we ever had was with Canada. Um, it, in the in the eighties, there was um, uh, a certain mo- movement in Canada Customs to shut down gay and lesbian literature. Um, there was a bookstore in Vancouver that was uh, fighting for the right their right to um, uh, sell books that uh, some of the Canada Customs people didn't like. It was called Little Sisters. They had to sue the Canadian government, and we were selling them books. that was, I've never experienced in that period um, any overt censorship. Threats, always. You know, there's always been, um, you know, an undercurrent of people who oppose diverse voices or voices that they don't agree with. But at least fortunately for us, we didn't have to deal with overt censorship, you know. I always felt like the '50s opened doors for us. You know, the um, the the case against Howell, Lady Chatterley's Lover. Those were we thought those had been won, and that censorship really wasn't going to be the issue. Um, it was more subtle, I think, uh, in the '80s and '90s. It was more opposition political opposition to ideas that um, people on the right disagreed with would be um, more what we were facing.
1: Mm. Uh, let's, let's talk about um, another category with this distribution. Um, and it's getting back to, you know, a foot is not a fish. Is it more difficult to distribute children's books? Today? Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I think that the, the challenges that um, are... I. You know, for children's books are under attack. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that um, li- libraries are under attack. Um, when schools are under attack and libraries are under attack, I think that does make things more difficult um, on, a, on a lot of levels. Because, And it's much more about the local level where, you know, you'll see that books are pulled out of a school completely. Um, librarians are being threatened uh, physically, you know, threatened with harm, um, those have that has a chilling effect on their ability to be to do what their job is, which is to make books available to kids. And you know, librarians are not censors, but they are. You know, they're fairly they're not insensitive either. You know, librarians don't give books to seven year olds that are appropriate for high schoolers. That's you know, they're they're not stupid. Um, and they care about what they do. So when you frighten them, threaten them, make it harder for them to do what they believe in, um, that has a chilling effect. Um, and, of course, that then carries back to book publishers and to writers, to authors, to children and parents, because people then are afraid to um, uh, to espouse what they believe in. And it, you're, it, it feels like your being is under attack. When, okay. Then,
1: I'm I'm going to be I'm going to be Cornelia Mord Spellman for a minute. Okay, you David Wilk have nicely nice Cup you have nicely published my book. Okay. How are you going to distribute it? What 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 is what is going to be your approach specifically for this book? Who do you see the target audience and how do you get it to them?
2: Well, that's you know those are all good questions. <laughs> <laughs> i do not sure you can answer them all, but we are we you, you always look at who's the audience. Well, we think it's librarians Teachers and parents, grandparents, people who um almost any kid's book is going to be for them. So um we work with Simon and Schuster as the distributor for this uh for publishing. This is Frederator Books. We're a um uh a mostly digital publisher of kids' books, rarely doing print because uh you know it, it print is difficult, it's challenging. But um, we are fortunate to have Simon & Schuster in their distribution network. Um, we send out review copies to um, all of the media that supports libraries and schools. We also um, uh, try to get this book into the hands of media. We're talking to you. This is great. <laughs> uh, you know, we want everyone who we can reach to talk about this book. So if we're really lucky. I mean, we've sent copies out to people who we think have uh, spheres of influence, and we hope that they will notice the book and talk about it. Um, if we can get it into uh, the hands of librarians and school teachers, I think we will feel like we've done a really good job. Mm.
1: You you also serve on the board of the Community uh, Literary Magazines and Presses, uh, CLMP. I remember you mentioned Jim Sitter. Uh, what does this organization do, and how important is, is- if I've started out a magazine for me to know about this organization,
2: well, that, I'm glad you asked about them. Uh, it was originally called Coordinating Council of Literary Magazines. It was started in the mid '60s by a bunch of literary magazine editors uh, who felt that magazines, literary magazines, needed a support network of some kind uh, to help them function. Um, you know, it was like a sharing of ideas support network. Um, over the years, they've raised a lot of money and they have a grant program for magazines and literary and small publishers uh, who only do literary books. Um, And there are now, I think 800 member magazines and presses, which is pretty good uh, all over the United States, print and digital. Um, It's, you know, there's a whole uh, range of digital literary magazines that never existed before the last 15, 20 years. Um, And, all of them need support you know whether it's financial or uh technical support you know sometimes they need help understanding how do you work with a printer um and, you
1: know, and david we here at WPFW we need support too <laughs> okay well
2: exactly and i want to <laughs> and i i would like to put in a plug for uh radio mm-hmm. um i you know i i was a i've been a radio junkie my whole life and i've always listened to um the Pacifica network stations, uh, wherever I've been, I think that um, actually, nonprofit radio is not that different in principle from nonprofit literary publishing. It's doing the same thing. It's promoting alternative voices, and it's uh, supporting communities. I I should be working with you. Katia, are you still there? <laughs> David, David just, David just oh, took he, your job. He
0: just waited. Right, well, right, I want
2: to, just, no. I want. To, I believe in what I believe that we are <laughs> working in the same field. We're just we planting
0: Yep, we <laughs> absolutely are. Well, Ethelbert and David, we want to thank Anonymous out of Tacoma Park. Oh, I'm intrigued about who that is. But at any rate, thank you so much for your pledge of support. We still have four hundred and fifty dollars, folks, and and heed David's words. This is a way to get alternative voices, voices that, frankly, you won't really hear anywhere else or many other places, except for these kinds of spaces that we are, are um, um, fortunate to have all across the country. But there are far too many, too little, too few. And we need your support here at WPFW so we can continue to bring you voices like David's, like others that Ethel Gordon has, has had on this program the number to call is 800-222-9739 or you can go online to WPFWFM again $450 folks come on I know there's someone out there that has a thousand dollars and can just do this I understand Mm -hmm. colleagues on the air asked for that and got it we're doing that this morning we're asking for you if you've done well and you want to do something great for not just yourself remember when you support small bookstores when you support WPFW, you're supporting, or small publishers, you are supporting the entity not just for your own um, enrichment and satisfaction. You are supporting it for the entire community. You are helping something to keep going for everyone. So please, do your part right now if you can. 800-222-9739. Oh, Earshot from DC says, with gratitude to Ethelbert and his remarkable guests, for an impactful and unique literary program. Keep up the good work. So now we need $350. And again, you can go online to WPWFM.org. You can also uh, go to 800, dial 800-222-9739. I'm going to give it back to you and... And,
3: and your new pitch partner. <laughs>
1: okay. <laughs> All right. Okay. Uh, another black woman out of a job, David. That's <laughs> right. Thank you, David. No. <laughs> well, David, uh, um, a number of questions. Uh, what does the future look like now that we've had so much discussion recently about AI entering our lives? Um, um What type of rights will be affected? You know, I'm thinking people like me sort of strike out in Hollywood. But what... Type of impact you see it having on the field?
2: You know, this is something that is hugely under discussion now. AI is like every technology that comes along has an effect on our entire society. Um, and in the literary arts, it's unclear. You know, I think that there's a lot of discussion about this right now of fear that, uh, and not so much for creative writing, although there is that issue, um, that. Uh, for all kinds of writing, will, um, AI become smart enough to actually be creative, you know, to, to write something from scratch that a human being could, could have done. Um, so there's a concern about, you know, being put out of work, uh, being made obsolete. There's a, a, a big effort though, I think in the community, like in other fields to figure out how you can use AI to help not to replace Um, and i think some writers are experimenting uh, using um, ai tools to brainstorm um, to help outline a story um, to develop characters Um, i mean it could be valuable we don't know it's still to evolve i do think that um it it it's so powerful and also so unknown as yet and still developing that we can't really figure out today what it's going to look like even a year from now two years from now um but i try to read all of these experts in ai in a lot of different you know technology some of it i don't understand what they're talking about but um there are a lot of people who are experimenting now with the tools and trying to figure out how they work and i think that um we will see that it could become, it will become useful. Now, what I really think is important is the idea of made by humans as opposed by made by machines. Um, and there is again, I think there's a um there are many efforts around right now to essentially certify the notion that your creative output was made by you, made by a person as opposed to made by a machine. Um, you we might not be able to recognize it otherwise. I you know, I know with images they're talking about watermarking. I think we're going to need to have that in writing as well, A way of identifying and certifying that you actually wrote it. You not a large language model, an LLM of some kind uh, that's been trained and made to be really good at it. Um, it. it It relates to plagiarism too, that there's so many words out there. Um, You know, you could inadvertently be plagiarizing using one of these tools Mm -hmm. because they're all just trained on information. They're trained on um, a corpus of of work uh, made by humans. Mm -hmm. So when they regurgitate it, how do we know that they're not giving you back, um, you know, an entire paragraph from great expectations that you might not recognize. And then you put it in your in your story that you are writing and all of a sudden you become a plagiarist. Mm. So I think that the, the, the boundaries and rules of how AI will be used um, have to evolve. Well, um, what
1: about the big philosophical question? Because that's how that's where I begin with. I, I look at the question in terms of not just this as a tool, but raising the fundamental questions, what does it mean to be human? OK, it raises a question, for example, um, can robots dream? You know, mm-hmm. it gets into these type of, you know, some of these things are discussed by science fiction writers. But it seems that now we have a bigger issue to look at.
2: Well, and, and maybe that's beyond my capability. I I don't know. But I, I
1: thought th- you were an enlightened person, David.
2: <laughs> you know, I, I, I sort of think of it as tautological in a way. If all of these machines or we'll call them, you know, models they've all been built by humans they're all trained on human output so on some level um, they're simply expressions of human beings just like anything else that we create um, it sort of is circular um, can they create something original that's not human how could that be if everything they've ever learned is based on human output um, so are they alien or are they us um, to me, they're us um, can they create something that is different than we would have created ourselves, possibly, but it still uses all human output to be built on, therefore, by definition, it is human whatever they create, if they are creative is human
1: well, let me ask you a very personal questions here on the ear, David um whether you're human, because I don't know how you put out the weird times. (laughs) (laughs) That seems to be as if you're an alien. And where are you? You said you're out in Arizona right now. (laughs) Talk about the weird time, because I I, I don't know how you do that.
2: So during the pandemic, um, we were actually, we were visiting Arizona and I, you know, we ended up staying here because in Arizona,
1: visiting Arizona. That sounds like the sequel to raising Arizona.
2: Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, And I was, um, I was, you know, frankly, like a lot of us, terrified by what was going on. The unknowable and the unknown was. It seemed more profound than anything we'd ever experienced. I had never gone through anything like that except for the Cuban Missile Crisis, which I think. You know, was a. I think I was eleven then, terrified in a different way than I was when I was a grown up. So, uh, as a, I think as a way of helping to try to understand what was going on and to make a contribution to helping us um, all uh, wrestle with it in a positive way, I started a newsletter. It was at at the time that Substack had started, and they made it very easy to create a newsletter. So, um, I I burdened all of my friends by putting them on my mailing list. And I started reading and um, linking to selected articles that I thought were interesting, but also expressive of our weird times. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm now on issue number 196. Uh, I've done it every single week for the last almost five years. And I don't know how I do it, um, but every week I'm committed to... uh, Putting this thing together, it's sort of, I, I kind of feel like it is uh, a continuation of my work as a literary editor, um, you know, that um, it, it's an expression of my creativity to edit this thing. And hopefully, maybe somebody finds it useful. That's all I can say. Mm-hmm. Uh, if anybody wants to subscribe, I'm always, it's free. Um, I'll never charge for it. I will never charge a penny. Uh, it's called the Weird Times, and you can look it up on Substack. And um, welcome, subscribers. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, as we come to the end of our show, David, um, you know, I'm I'm very jealous of you because you're out in Arizona. You're going to be going to some baseball games, you know. Um, you yep. know, I'm stuck with the Super Bowl. That's all I got out here. Right. <laughs> but what I'm saying is, um, talk about just end on on your interest and love of the game, you know, because that's how actually how we we, we
2: communicate. Right. That's true. Well, baseball, as you know and I know you agree, uh, is the uh, kind of core of our uh, it's somewhere it's in the core of our being, you know, you talked to ask me about when I was growing up, I fell in love with baseball, probably at the age of six. Um, I remember baseball in 1957. Um, I think my grandfather took me to my first game at Yankee Stadium. And I still can feel that energy of seeing the field for the first time. I loved playing baseball. I loved reading about baseball. I had baseball cards. I listened to the radio at, you know. 11 o'clock at night when I should have been sleeping. I was listening to WLS in Chicago. I was listening to Detroit because you could pick them up miraculously in the middle of the night. I just, I don't Anyway,
1: and, and I wouldn't have any books if it wasn't for you. Yeah. <laughs> so I just want to thank you on the ear, David, for for publishing my baseball trilogy through uh, um, uh, City Point Press. Um, so I, I just want to thank you for that publicly. Well, but um,
2: your writing in baseball is among the best that there is. Okay. Well, thank you. Well, I
1: want to thank you for being my guest, Mike. Um, uh, just Before I say goodbye to to David, I want to just encourage our listeners to call 202-588-9739 or 1-800-222-9739. David, thank you for being my guest on on The Margin. Katia, are you still there?
0: I am, and I just wanted to say thank you, David. Wonderful conversation. Nice to meet you here. And we want to thank Jim out of Silver Spring, Maryland. Thank you so much. And um, we also want to say Anonymous out of Silver Spring, thank you for your pledge of support Again, um, the number to call, 800-222-9739. We still are in need of $210 to make the goal this morning. We can do that together, folks, seven minutes before the top of the hour. Or you can go online to WPFWFM.org. Let's do it for Ethelbert and David. $210 to go.
1: Okay, so I'm going to say goodbye to you, Katia. I'm going to say goodbye to you, David. The show's on the margin. My name is Ethelbert Miller. This is WPFW 89.3 FM you
3: Pink Women for Peace is coming to you live from Washington, D.C. and New York City, Thursday at 11 a.m. Code Pink Radio is an energizing new program focused on ending wars and militarism and building a peace economy. Listen weekly to robust conversation and inspiration from grassroots peacemakers from places like Korea, Yemen, Venezuela, Palestine, and Iran, as well as peacemakers in our nation's capital, who are confronting Warhawks in the White House and in Congress and modeling the actions we want our government to take. Again, that's Code Pink Radio, Thursdays at 11 a.m. on Washington, D.C.'s WPFW and New York City's WBAI, an engaging hour of cutting-edge conversation not to be missed. We are women of the world. We're from the east side.
1: CD Enterprises presents Grammy Award-winning jazz singer and songwriter Gregory Porter live in concert February 25th at the Theater at MGM National Harbor. Tickets are available now at mgmnationalharbor.com. Don't miss this generation's most influential jazz sensation, Gregory Porter, live. WPFW, Building a Better World,
2: One Broadcast, at a time. Gil Scott-Heron said, the revolution will not be televised. And yet we've seen oppression, suffering, and resistance streamed in real time across this country and around the world, from Palestine to D.C. In times like these it's imperative to have a station like wpfw that centers justice reflects hope and fosters solidarity throughout our music and public affairs programming from february 4th through the 24th we offer you the opportunity to partner with us in this critical work of liberation by donating during our winter pledge drive and ensuring that wpfw will be here to chronicle the revolution wpfw Revolutionary Radio for Revolutionary Times.
0: Big announcement. Home Rule Music Festival in partnership with WPFW presents an electrifying evening of music, culture, and community. Join us on Friday, February 23rd at Songbird Music House for the Home Rule Music Festival launch party and concert. Doors open at 7 p.m. Event starts at 8 p.m. Songbird is located at 540 Penn Street, Northeast, Washington, D.C. Special performances by the legendary Plunky from Oneness of Juju and the dynamic Brandon Woodie's Up Endue. Plus, don't miss the exclusive screening of the Captivating Fire documentary. Tickets are available at songbirddc.com. That's S-O-N-G-B-Y-R-D-D-C.com.
3: On Friday, February 23rd, 8 p.m., Strathmore presents prolific drummer, producer, and composer, Micaiah McCraven, Blending jazz, hip-hop, and electronic elements into a modern, beat-driven sound, his latest album, In These Times, is the triumphant finale of a project more than seven years in the making. Inspired by both broader cultural struggles and his personal experience as a product of a multinational, working-class musician community, McCraven has a unique gift for collapsing space destroying borders and blending past present and future into post-genre jazz-rooted 21st century folk music micaiah McCraven, in these times one night only friday february 23rd tickets and details available at strothmore.org wpfw building a better world one broadcast at a time
1: The best in live music entertainment is coming to Bethesda Theater. Celebrate more love at the Quiet Storm Valentine's celebration, featuring live performances of classic love songs on Saturday, February 10th at 8 p.m. Peebo Bryson on January